Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are in a fun series that I've been looking forward to a long time that we're calling Temple Presence. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the entire story of God from long ago history past to future and what is in store for us in days and years to come. We're looking at all of that story, the meta narrative of scripture, and we're asking throughout all of the story, where is the presence of God with the people now? And that's what we're tracking. We're tracking the story of God as seen through the place of God's presence with his people. And the reason that we're looking at the entire story of all of the universe in that way is that we want to notice the power of presence, the power of the presence of God. And the big idea here is that God is in constant pursuit of relationship and is making ways for presence to happen all throughout time. So last week we started, little snippet in case you missed it, we called last week leaving the garden because as Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect, pure communion with God after the, um, they fell to the temptation to take the knowledge of good and evil onto themselves instead of allowing that to stand in the hand of God. Once they had fallen to that temptation, the relationship between a perfectly holy God and an unholy people now needed some form of mediation for the safety of the people. We watched as they left the garden and became a people group on the move. We kept our eye out to constantly answer, as they're leaving the garden, where is the presence of God with the people now? And we found a couple of really creative ways that God was persistently pursuing relationship. We saw examples where the uh, presence of the Lord took an actual physical form in a couple of examples in the Old Testament where uh, an angel of the Lord or the Lord would arrive and have a conversation in some form with humans to guide them and intimately instruct them on the place they had in the ongoing story of God. But we notice in those examples that this was not uh, communication with community. Those were very intimate and individual at the time. Then God started to show up in the form of cloud and fire. We saw several examples of that, and we continue to see the theme of God's guidance to the people of God, but now visible to the entire group. And then, of course, the beautiful moment that we leaned into last week when God gave instructions for a tabernacle, saying, then I will have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them ongoingly. I will have a place to dwell among them. And so this is what we're talking about in that whole part last week was to look at the presence theme of all of the history of God and see God was wanting and pursuing relationship because the relationship between God and people was a core part of their identity, who they even were as a people. Remember God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God wanted that very identity that relational identity to reflect his character and eventually bless the rest of the world outward. Through you, all nations will be blessed. So that's like the big theme that we were seeing last week, that the presence of God with people fosters the relationship that's core not only to their identity, but to their purpose in this world to bless outward and to reflect God's character. And the tabernacle became that movable point of intersection between a holy God and an unholy people that is safe for humans and it allows that safe mediation and that also fosters the relationship 
between God and humans, allows that to be in a space. So we delighted last week in just that creative, persistent pursuit of relationship. Our God, the holy God of the universe, longs that much for relationship with us. That's a really big deal. And we said that it never be lost on us. That promise that we hear in Jeremiah when God says, I will be found by you. So today in the narrative of scripture where we find ourselves is we're no longer this moving people needing a tabernacle. We now have come and we've finally arrived as the people of God we have been adopted in. I'm using we language, you know, with New Testament intentionality. Uh, The people of God have been moving and moving and they finally find themselves arriving in Jerusalem, a city on a hill. And we take that awe that we had last week of the relational capacity, the relational love of God, and we now find ourselves balancing it with a sense of reverence. As we move from tabernacle to temple, we see the space curated to foster reverence, deep respect for the holiness of God. We see that when we look at the temple. This group of people on the move have been wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience, but they knew there was a promised land to come, that that's where that smoke and fire, that guidance of God was directing them to a promised place. They knew that promise was there, and they were going battle after battle with the inhabitants of that land of Canaan. And then under the leadership of King David, I won't retell that whole thing. We did the life of David last summer. But but under his leadership, they finally enter Jerusalem, the holy land, a city on a hill, Mount Zion, city of David, all of these biblical terms like the place. And you get this collective sense of relief, like we made it. This thing that we've been promised and going towards for so long, we've made it. And David says, once they arrive, in essence, to God, hey, you've brought us here. I want to build you a temple. You've been living in a tent. Let's honor you. Let's build a table, a, a, a temple. It's just not right for you to be in a tent anymore. That's a paraphrase. And God says through the prophet Nathan, no, that's actually not for you to do, David. And instead, here's what God says to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You're saying you want to build one for me? I am establishing your house, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom, whispers of the Messiah. He is the one who will build a house for my name. This is the actual son. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, I shouldn't have inserted things in there. I was thinking out loud and I didn't mean to do that. So here's what he's saying. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish his throne in the kingdom forever. And so where David might think like your next couple offsprings, we know that there was a promise greater, like somebody's going to come and establish a throne forever, establish this kingdom forever. And I have done a whole lot of promises to Sam not to get too far into what happens after that. But we hear whispers of a Messiah and what is to come. But look at what this covenant is doing. When God replies to David's request, hey, can I build you a temple now? And he says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. And what we hear in this, notice, this is an unconditional covenant, meaning God is making a promise and there's nothing that is conditional on David's part that this will be fulfilled. God is just saying there will be... um, there, there will be a house forever, a lineage um, that we now have as the promise of a Messiah lineage to come. But through this line of David and the tribe of Judah, 
this kingdom will be established forever and ever. And he also tells David, and your son Solomon, he'll be the one to build a temple. That's not on you. He actually says, you, you have a lot of blood on your hands from all these battles, so not for you to do. So David, in obedience, hands off the blueprints for a temple to his son. And that was our reading today that Kelly read, was this moment where... Um, the temple has come. So we've not only arrived, that sense of arrival, but now there's a sense of permanence where the dwelling place has been a tent, a constant reminder that we're on the move and are not yet settled. Now we get that sense of permanence. And this is where I wanted to be celebrating temple presence, city on a hill that cannot be hidden moment in the meta narrative of, script, uh, of scripture. Everything in this place was designed to promote worship, reverence, awe at the holiness of God, along with the intimacy already established in how to have the Lord actually dwell with the people, that intimacy as well. And so we see that, like, let it be with you. So we hold that relationship of last week with the reverence of this week, and we want to be able to celebrate both. Relationship without awe and reverence, um, it, it loses the worship right? But reverence without relationship can be sterile or performative. So this is a holy land moment of dedicating the temple. And it's like a culmination of both. Be with me and experience my divine holiness in ways that like form you and change you. Um, and what I wanted to do this morning, what I had wanted to do was explore the sensations of reverence and see the, in the building of a temple that that physical place matters to God, that place matters to God, right? So God is not confined by physical space, but, but we are. We talked about that briefly last week. And so he creates a holy special place for worshipful encounter. And so the, the reverence and the set-apartness of that particular place is where I wanted to hang out and spend time today. But wow, there's a tension in doing that right now. Uh, this week was just one where I said, there go my plans. I sketched out this approach to tell the entire story to God last winter. I had no idea what would be happening in this very region of our world at the time that it came to November 12th and we were gonna talk about reverence of holy place and importance of that in reverence to God. I wanted to be considering the historical moment of the people of God dedicating the temple on Mount Zion, the anticipation, the reverence, and the awe, and celebrate that. But when I open up my newsfeed every morning and every first picture is worn, war-torn land now, and I'm looking at renderings of the ancient temple at the same time that I'm looking at the crumbles that are um, cities now, and considering this place, this city on a hill place in our world today, I know that with reverence and place, we also have to hold sorrow. And we're going to do that all today in a way that I hope can be um, impactful for us as followers of God, of a holy God. So um, really quick. A couple of things. First of all, uh, there is a disclaimer to be said that the Israel of the Bible that we have studied, this people group in the Bible, is not the exact same of the nation state of Israel now. They are overlapped, but not identical. And we 
I spent um, Monday, you guys, doing like a deep dive. I have not done my homework on the history of what is going on there. And so I just went deep. And so I have some things, if it would help you to just learn anything of like sources from history and theological views on understanding this people group that is just... Um, the history of, of the nation of God's people of Israel. Like, it's just so big. But what I want to say, this disclaimer about today is like, I have nothing to do with sides. I just, I just don't. It is so much more complicated than I could co ever comprehend. And me spending a deep dive is, has me so wildly underqualified. I will not be discussing politics of conflict here whatsoever. I, I really don't want to do that. Um, God's heart grieves at war. And we are seeing war and our hearts grieve and our hearts know that there is a place tied to a history that is so complicated and hard and hurtful that um, I don't want to misuse this space at all. I want to just have this be a space to not say sides or thoughts on conflict. I don't, God's heart is grieving and my heart grieves and I know yours do and it's overwhelming. And so... I just want to say that we are talking about a history that we know of about 4,000 years recorded of contested space. And that's like a really big deal. Um, so what I know from if we go 4,000 years back is that our Bibles teach us that this contested space is the space where Abraham went and went back to like um, sacrifice Isaac. Like that's how far back this history goes. Our, our history around here is like, I feel like our building's 100 years old and that's like, wow, it's so old, right? And it's like, this is like mind blowing when you stop and think about the history we have on this little piece of space. We see Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice and we know the history of that. We see this temple we're talking about this morning being built and celebrated and then destroyed and then rebuilt and then plundered and then rebuilt and then questionably rebuilt again and then Romans erecting a temple to Jupiter on the same space and then crusaders having a hot second while they were there in uh, control of the spot there uh, eventual Muslim conquest I read in one of the things I was reading like you guys this might be the most this is how they say it. The Temple Mount has seen more monumental historical events than perhaps any other 35 acres in the world. 35 acres. That's like not actually that big. And to think of the history of conflict and contested space we see there. So I'm going to do something a little different this morning than normal. We're, I'm, I'm going to teach from the Bible because that's what I do. Um, and so we are going to tell this story, but while we do it, we are going to all keep our hearts open on where it is that we can weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15, bear each other's burdens, Galatians 6, 2, and say like our world is hurting and uh, we want to talk about that while we talk about the story of God in the same time. So as we study the reverence of this holy place, I want to ask you, listening to Solomon's dedication of the temple, to listen for a word, for a theme, um, images in your imagination, and I invite you, stop listening to me and hold that in prayer. Like, just pause and just be in prayer. And I also want to say to you, like, uh, this is um, a lot, and so I want to remind you all that there's freedom to move around this space. We actually have, if you feel at all overwhelmed or some of the, the, um, this language is uh, upsetting or triggering. We have a space in the other room, in the um, overflow room, with a weighted blanket and noise-reducing uh, headphones and fidget toys. Like, honor your body and move about this space as you need to. Um, because here's, here's what's happening. The temple 
moment. This moment in the history of God reminds us like, you guys, place does matter. God isn't confined by place, but God uses sacred spaces to lift our heart towards Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps you have a sacred space in your own life. Maybe it's when you come into this sanctuary. Maybe it's your favorite quiet time chair. Maybe it's a special walk. One of my sacred spaces was where I first met Creator God on Sleeping Bear Dunes when I was 13 years old. And that is a holy ground to me. So space does matter. And so I would just say to you, like, as we're honoring that, we know sacred spaces lift our hearts to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want us to be in this space today, a little different than a normal service, praying that contested space could again find peace and be a light, a reflection of the divine glory of our triune God once again. So stop listening to me whenever you want to and pray as often as your heart is stirred. If you think about it, if we all stop listening to me a few times in the course of the next 20 minutes and offer prayers a couple of times. Like how many prayers have been lifted up in the peace of this time in this space? Like mathematically, I don't usually do math. That doesn't like inspire me, but I thought of it this morning and I was like, we could get a lot of coverage. So I really mean it. Like, please tune me out and pray as many times as you need to during the course of this morning. So we're going to look at the dedication of the temple in this moment, in the meta narrative of scripture. And then we're going to go and we're going to pray through the groups that Solomon prays through. And I'll explain that when we get there. Because Solomon does start out as a good and faithful king. He is a man of prayer and he is so psyched to build this temple for God. Remembering God doesn't need a temple and even Solomon acknowledged that in his prayers, but he knows the people do. And being a good king, in the beginning, he's super excited to be the one to build this temple. So Solomon says this, but will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built yet. Lord, my God, hear, uh, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servants pray towards this place. So the temple is important for the place. And, and Solomon's saying, like, hear us in a special way in sacred spaces, right? So this similar to the tabernacle in the details we have of this holy place, but on a much grander scale. The temple is built as an assembly place for all the people, even an extensive courtyard that allowed non-Jews to come and worship in reverence of God. Its beautiful imagery, again, reflects some pieces of the Garden of Eden in its symbolism, reminding the people of God for that time in their own history when there was unmitigated uh, shalom, communion between humanity and God. It's supposed to give signs back to that. It was a reminder when presence was pure and unmitigated. There's sensory engagement, because God knows we are limited by space and that we have these bodies and he honors that with the, the um, flickering light of the menorah candles, the smells of the incense, all of that, the, the touch of the water. These are embodied in engagements with the holy and it leads to the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant sits. Again, as we talked about last week, not an idol, but a 
as the Bible project says, it's the hot seat of God's presence, um, sort of like a, a holy dwelling place where the Shekinah glory, Shekinah glory is the, the visible glory of the invisible God, uh, where that Shekinah glory rests in this amazing space. And temple build out allows levels of nearness to that divine radiance. And it's meant to evoke worship, reverence, awe, every part of it. And Solomon even envisioned non-Jews would be able to come and worship here as well. Like all the world will be able to experience God. In uh, one Hebrew English translation, I found it was written this way. Thus, all the people of the earth will know your name and revere you, that reverence, as does your people Israel. They will recognize that your name is attached to this house that I have built. Your name, your presence is here. So Solomon had a beautiful imagination for how this building would be used by the people to worship God and how other people would meet and hear prayers as they worship here. But as a spoiler alert, we start to see some whispers that it might not go quite like Solomon imagined on this triumphant day. God communicates a response to Solomon's prayers of temple dedication, and God responds in this way, as for you, to Solomon, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. What we see here is that unlike the unconditional promise to David that the people of God still clung to. They knew a line was coming from the line of David. There was an unconditional covenant made, a promise with David. But here there is a condition to Solomon. Solomon's promise is linked to condition. And I think that God knew because Solomon indeed does wander. The rest of his story goes way downhill, like way, way downhill. We see a little bit of how this might go before it actually starts to happen. Like Solomon's like, oh, we've done it. I took seven years to build this temple. And then he goes and he spends 13 years building his own palace. And we start to see the rise of where Solomon's heart is really focused. He starts to marry foreign wives and he starts worshiping foreign gods. So the story goes in a different direction for Solomon and the promises to Solomon. But remember, you guys, that promise to David was unconditional and still stands. And the people of God know that. And we remember, God doesn't need this temple, the people do. It was the plan to foster relationship and reverence and be that bridge between holy and human. And so what we start to see on the Temple Mount is the same cyclical story of God's people, ourselves included, that we talked about in Judges. Do you guys remember that cycle? Yes, God, we return to you. And then there's a time of prosperity and God has heard our cries and then we wander again. And I think of that song all the time. I don't remember which song it is, but the song that says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like if we're honest, we know we all do this cycle in our own lives. And we remember that 
all of the cries of the prophets say again and again in the cycle of the story, not just, this isn't just, this is the cycle of humans, right? Not from just the Old Testament that we studied, but through our lives even now. We hear the cries of the prophet again and again saying, return, right? Remember, we talked literally, return from the evil ways, redirect back to faithful worship of God. Come back to me, the faithfulness that I've called you to, to reflect who I am. Reflect my character. Live into your identity. When you wander, return that cycle again and again. And that key verse that I mentioned briefly earlier, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. Return. I want to be found by you. And our part is to turn. And God is always faithful to his part of that promise. We see through history as we do our fast forward through all of the meta narrative of scripture, we see that um, time and time again, the people of God have been sent into exile. We see Babylon comes and sends people away from this holy temple on a hill where they've been. We see that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild, they re-celebrate Torah, they return, they rebuild the wall. And then we see the cycle again and again. We see exile, return. We see new enemies through the cycle. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, like we see a cycle of this exile and return because the people are holding on to prophetic promises of a future hope of God's presence permanently being among them. And I think that the temple probably was confusing in this point in history because the people of God would have thought like, finally, we're here. This could be the permanence, but there's more to come. And they would have asked, what does this mean that this physical temple keeps being destroyed? But we keep looking to God to say, God, we know your promises are true. How are you going to solve this one? Our temple keeps being destroyed. How will God resolve this? Because your promises always are fulfilled. And they're looking to the future that they know isn't right yet because the cycle that they're living in and that they're experiencing And I promised Sam I would not do the spoiler alert for next week on how that promise gets fulfilled. But you guys, I want us to feel that longing today, that holy hunger of saying, like, we know your promises are true, but golly gosh, we don't feel that right now as our permanence keeps getting uprooted. What do I do with this? I say this. In this part of the story, temple presence matters to God. Not because God is confined, but because a place matters. Reverence, relationship being fostered between God and people, that matters. And we see it in the life of Jesus. This isn't stealing from Sam. If he says, I am next week, it's not. But let's just go ahead a minute. Like even Jesus, who we know the whispers are of a fulfillment of this temple promise that could not be fulfilled by a building itself. We know that even Jesus, who knew that about himself, revered the temple. Do you guys remember in Mark 11, where he sees the holiness of the temple being desecrated and lessened as it becomes basically a trading post where the social economic disparity was unjust and like it wouldn't have been a fair, it was not a picture of God's design of justice and mercy. It was a trading post and he was so mad. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, 
is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. We see even Jesus, who knows next week's part of the story, he knows it. even Jesus reveres place because sacred place matters to humans who live in confined places. This matters, and he knows it's to be a house of prayer for all nations. Of course, Jesus remembers always the Abrahamic covenant that through you all nations will be blessed. There's still a plan to come. This is to be a house of prayer for all nations. We'll talk more about Jesus's role next week, but for today, I want to take his words to heart. I want us to be praying that this sacred place in history would be a place of prayer for all nations. Today, we're having our little outpost in our place, that this place can be a sacred place of prayer for all nations. I know that's different, a different place than what we're studying, but here is where we happen to be. And so this is the part that's a little different. I want to return to the contested space of the area in the Middle East that has been our entire biblical history that we study and that we honor and that we revere. And I want to use Solomon's prayer of dedication as a launching spot with pauses in between to have our own prayer. So if you're new, if you're visiting, this is a little different format than we usually do. And... Um, I would just also say, if you're not a person of prayer or you're not familiar with prayer, um, I'm going to list some ideas for you after each pause in the people group. Like maybe just grab one and just hold the word out in, in, your, in, your, in your heart, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know what to pray, but I pray for hostages, whatever that means, or whichever people group you want to pray for, okay? So I'm going to open up his words and go through those and then pause for a prayer on, in each of your own hearts as you're willing on some section of what stirs your heart in this story. And I would just say this as well. Um, in, this, in the prayer of Solomon, he's remembering at each and every turn that, that he, speak, he speaks of people's sin a lot because he knows that we, he's just highlighting this is a place of a holy God and a people who are prone to wander, right? And so um, we just know that you can also just pray in this space to say like, I know that what I need more than a temple is the saving grace of Jesus. So just like help me in my sin to even know how to be in prayer. So here's what we're going to do. Some ideas for you that just came to mind yesterday as um, all a fluster as happens sometimes when my heart is full and my mind is feeling overwhelmed with trying something new, right? And so Andy's like, I have to run out and buy the bread for communion. He's like, you should be baking the bread today because he knows it calms me down to do the slow thing. And then you have to wait an hour and then you turn it and wait again. Like he's like, you should bake it. So I was baking the bread, thinking of the groups that we should, that wasn't a brag. Like it's just, it's not a great loaf either, by the way. It's all messed up on the top. Um, but I was thinking about like the groups that are on my heart to pray for. So I submit these to you just as options, but you guys like go for it wherever your hearts are. Here's what I was thinking about. It's like, man, baking this bread. I pray for the hostages and their families, for leaders in their decision-making, for negotiators who are dealing with such fragile conversations, for humanitarian aid efforts, for displaced people everywhere, not only in this moment, but throughout the history of the people of God, like major displacement history, for hurting families, 
prayers against escalation from other groups using the situation for political maneuvering. There was a bomb coming in from Lebanon today and accusations on both sides on where that was coming from. Like that escalation, we gotta pray against that, you guys. Prayers against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia spreading around the world with just, um, just, yeah, prayers against hate. You guys pick. These are some I thought of. And so this is indeed different than we usually do. But um, I'm going to read from an abridged version of Solomon's seven categories and then pause. And at each one, just lift up something in prayer, even if it's just saying, like, God, for this group. So here we go. A little different. Solomon prayed, when anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath, when any of us mess up, God, then will you judge between the guilty and vindicate the innocent? When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned, and when they turn back and praise your name, hear them, forgive them, bring them back to the land you gave them. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, but then they pray toward this place, hear from heaven, forgive, teach them the right way to live. When famine or plague comes, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or a plea is made by any, anyone among your people Israel, being aware of their affliction and pain, hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive. Deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts. You alone know the human heart. For the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel but has come from a distant land because of your great name, when they come and pray toward the temple, hear them from heaven. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the people of the earth may know your name and revere you. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward this city you have chosen and the temple I've built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and they plead to you, and if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul, hear their prayer, uphold their cause, forgive your people. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Thank you, God, that place matters. You know the hearts of people far beyond what we do. We hold our prayers out to you knowing that you hear while you are not bound by place. 
the people in the places matter so, so much to you. God, we often feel defeated in the face of so much in this world. Help us to remember you hear our prayer anytime we turn to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you do know our hearts. As Solomon said, only you, God, can know the human hearts. You know our hearts and you love us and you love us. And that you've made a path back to holy relationship with a holy God, like you are that pathway. And we sit in that truth and we hold on to that truth. And maybe some of us just need to hear that truth today that you provide the path. But God, as we stand here knowing that the veil has been torn, we have access to unmitigated relationship with you and we feel the pain. And so we hold out reverence and relationship and sorrow and prayer in this place. We say, come Lord Jesus, come. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.